0: You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world, with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America Also we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show.
1: Hello superstars and welcome to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. Today I'm really pleased to have Dr. Parul Anija who is an infectious disease specialist that has uh, agreed to come and talk to us about COVID-19 or the novel coronavirus infection as a follow-up of the preceding episode on a public information type of format. Uh, I'm super excited and thrilled to have her here on episode number 20. We're now reaching episode number 20 and uh, the the population in our uh, podcast of followers uh, has been just growing exponentially like a virus. So I just hope that you guys keep tapping on my my uh, podcast, downloading, subscribing, and also uh, find us on my YouTube channel under my name and the same uh, podcast name. So Dr. Aniha uh, uh, is a board-certified infectious disease specialist for the LA people. What that means is that she has a full training in internal medicine. She's an internist, and then she completed a fellowship in infectious diseases. She is, like uh, me, a foreign medical graduate. She attended medical school in the country of India, and she's been practicing now in the United States for more than a decade. Um, we're extremely happy to have her here, and welcome to the show, Dr. Aniha. I don't know if you have anything else to tell about yourself and and what it's like a day in your life these days.
2: Um, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Parul Aneja. I'm so happy to be on the show with uh, Dr. Alonzo, and um, well, I think you introduced me well, and I life nowadays is busy, as you can imagine, with a lot of questions and uncertainty about this virus. So I think if we talk about it, well, we can help you know answer some of the questions today, hopefully.
1: And, and that's my goal. Uh, from somebody that uh, specializes and sees these on a regular basis and now probably is at the front line of dealing with these type of people, and you're probably getting a bunch of consultations regarding these type of patients, uh, people are obviously having some significant amount of panic because they're getting biased by the information that is being provided in social media. And you have done a fantastic job. I follow you on Facebook, and I think you have done some significant education. I have seen specifically two posts. One of them has been about flattening the curve, and I want to ask you what that means. And the other one has been on the fact that we have shortage uh, for uh, uh, pre-exposure prevention uh, um, uh, mask right, better, yeah, supplies. Right, right. So what is, what do you think? Uh, tell us about uh, what it, what means flattening the curve.
2: So basically uh, flattening the curve, we need to understand what uh, a pandemic means first. So pandemic means something that's happening at the same time at a large scale worldwide. So it doesn't happen over a period of time or every season, but all of a sudden it's like an explosion all over the world. But our resources are still the same. So we have the same amount of things we have in the hospital, the same amount of rooms, the same amount of doctors, nurses, and even medicines and masks. But the demand has exponentially grown all of a sudden, it's exploded. So, and the cases are doubling. So we are dealing with a pandemic situation. Now, flattening the curve means so you have to, the way to beat this, the way it's taking over us is the rapid spread, right? It's it multiplying and it's overcoming all the resources. So how do you beat that? The straight answer is you stop the spread. So when you look at the curve of people are need into the healthcare system, and you look at the resources we have, and if everything peaks at the same time, the resources stay the same and the number of days that the cases are happening stay the same, and we run out of resources. The number of healthcare workers, the hospital beds, ICUs, ventilators, everything does cannot meet the demand. But if you come down and you start to stop the spread and you control it, you sort of flatten the curve, meaning the curve that is going up with the number of cases compared to the number of days. So the number of days is the x-axis and the cases is the y-axis, and that curve is like a peak right now, You bring the curve down, so you decrease the number of cases, and you flatten the curve. So then the number of resources we have will be able to match the number of patients we have. That's basically the the philosophy behind this, and it's a very common sense thing. Hence, we we are suggesting and we are kind of educating the population to do the right thing and to stop the transmission. That's what flattening the curve means.
1: It's it's been uh, remarkably difficult to get that done here in the United States, uh, because, first of all, every state kind of is their own little country, despite the fact that the president approaches the governors uh, on their own by themselves. Uh, But when you compare the behavior that happened in China that, you know, is a communist country, People get told, you need to stay home or you will be penalized or go to jail. People actually have to do it. But here is a free country. That's why we came here. Uh, But people are still going to the beach. As of yesterday, they were showing on on camera the thousands of people that were actually just hanging out at the beach. How do you feel about this uh, social and public behavior as of now?
2: So I think the test of any society comes when things like this happen. And to talk about China and the reason we think that the people were listening, I think has to do not just with the fact that, you know, there's fear of penalization. But if you look back, the model China followed was taught by the CDC back when the pandemic education was going on in the early 60s or whatever. We taught them how to control a pandemic. And they learned from their SARS epidemic, you know, in the late 90s, 2000s, they had everything already there. They learned how to control it and they followed the guidelines and the people listened because they've lived through one. So the social awakening was already there. For us as a society, as a mother, as a physician, I worry because people are stocking up on toilet paper, People are stocking up on water. They're pushing and pulling. And it's about me, me, me versus us as a society. You know, each person at this point in time needs to look and see what their role is and what they can do to stop the spread of this. And today's actions of what we do as individuals will really reflect on our society. So it's not about you or me. It's about everybody that we're all here in this together. And this has never been more true. So if you and I decide we want to go to the beach because who cares? We are healthy. And, you know, that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people that talk to me, even in my own community. They're going to the community pool, which, by the way, I got it shut down yesterday. I had to. But, you know, they're talking about, well, what we understand, it's just the flu. I don't have any old family members in my house, so I'm okay. That mentality is what's bringing us down as a society. You know, we need to talk about social responsibility, about being there for each other about thinking about this as a global scale, and sadly, that's not happening. The pictures from Clearwater Beach are sad, the pictures from Sam's Club and Costco and Publix with empty shelves it's really sad. It shows us what we've become as a society, you know.
1: It's extremely sad, and also, I was talking to a personal friend of mine in Texas. He said that actually, the amount of uh, gun sales has gone up. Uh, through the roof. And when you think about why are people buying guns, are they preparing themselves to fight each other to, you know, like this was the end of the world. I, I think this is not even the end of the world. We have had epidemics like this in the past. How do you feel about these uh, extreme measures that people are thinking about taking if things think, get worse?
2: So uh, I think the difference between the reactions depends on their amount of knowledge they have received. So if you read the right sources, if you read the CDC and you listen to the news and understand the scientific basis behind it, you act differently. So I, I have friends on Facebook, on my regular feed, You know, people are talking to me on the phone. I can almost tell which news channel they're listening to, who their source of information is based on their reaction to this virus. The scientific ones, the ones that are actually following the data, the ones who understand what flattening the curve means, are doing the right thing. Like they're not going to the grocery stores anymore. You know, they've limited everything. They've canceled all their children's activities. They're actually at home for the most part. People like you and me, we have to go to work. But some of them don't have to. And then the other group is the group that listened to this in the beginning and when it was being trivialized and said, oh, it's nothing, it's under control. And they have stuck to that. They're not informing themselves of what the reality is. That is where the problem is, the knowledge gap. And they are acting more panicked versus more practical. So they are the ones that have hoarded the toilet paper. I wonder why. Uh, And they're the ones that are actually going everywhere. They went to the bar on St. Patrick's Day in, in downtown. They've been watching movies. They've been going out. And so one of them told me that this mother was very concerned. The church has closed. Idlewild has closed. And they actually are doing service online. So some of them understood and they stayed at home. But a small group of them actually sat in one person's house and watched the service together. So again, you know, lack of knowledge, lack of understanding and leading to panic and gun sales. And I saw I heard a conversation today amongst two healthcare providers who were talking about keeping a gun in their car because they're worried. And I was thinking we should be the last people talking like that. We should be the ones going out and educating people, telling them it's common sense, do the right thing. And, you know, we'll get over this. But the faster we control the spread, the faster things will come back to normal. You know, that's what it is.
1: Obviously, the community, the society, personal friends are reaching out to you because this is your specialty, infectious diseases. What is a a day of your life like right now? What are you dealing with and what kind of situations you're dealing with? And the other question is, what's the regular message that you deliver to the lay person that is not in healthcare?
2: So to answer my day, uh, I think as an infectious disease physician, I have been very concerned about the lack of response to this and the lack of preparedness we had when we first heard about this infection. I mean, it's a pandemic. We knew it was coming here. People have been traveling freely before we stopped travel, but we were not ready. We are the most developed, most powerful nation in the world, but today we are you know not ready for this so that causes a lot of mental uh, you know stress and uncertainty uh on a personal level my kids are home like most of our kids are out of school for spring break but they're not going back to school which i'm okay with for now uh they understand i'm very proud of my children they canceled their ten- tennis activities because they figured that the coach is also teaching other children and then they touch the ball and it's a fomite. This is from my 13 year old. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, we have virtual lessons for them right now. They're doing piano virtually, they're doing uh, their other stuff and the school will start online learning. So we're doing pretty good that way. My husband is also an infectious disease physician. He works full time too. So we have a situation where neither of us can afford to be sick and neither of us can afford to get exposed so that adds to our tension at home. But we are doing what we can. We're trying to you know, follow the social distancing. We are trying to stay healthy, doing what we have to do at home. We, are, we have no activities. So that's my personal day. Uh, I'm being bombarded with questions, but I'm more than happy to answer them. In fact, on Facebook, personal messages, WhatsApp, text messages, phone calls, on the floor in the hospital, I cannot leave any floor without being questioned about it by healthcare workers because their knowledge is limited by what they're being told so it's it is uh, it adds to all the stress we're going through but i think it's our responsibility to educate and i'm doing that uh to answer the second part of your question what i'm telling the lay people is please this is a socially responsible time do the right thing hunker down limit exposure even if you think you're healthy you might be the one person at the link that breaks the transmission. Think of it that way. You know, this is, this is not a hysterical thing. This is not a hoax. This is not meant to bring the stock market down or any of that. The conspiracy theories are all false. This is a virus that mutated. It's attacking everything. And even if you don't believe in it, even if it's for your own selfish reason, Stop the transmission so you can get back to life. You know, schools will open again. Everything will go back. People will start going back to work. So even if it's just that as your primary goal, please do the right thing is what I'm telling everybody.
1: What I'm concerned the most is that I think as of today, we have reached that uh, on the curve of uh, growth of the uh, uh, pandemic. We have surpassed the threshold of uh, the behavior as of today into China at the same time in in space. And. We know that these uh, infections just go be, behave exponentially. You know, it's not it's, you have one people and then the next day you have two, but then think about then the next day you have four and then eight. But when you reach a thousand, then the next day is two thousand, or you have ten thousand, the next day is twenty thousand. That's when you really start kind of panicking, and, and and that's my biggest concern. I don't think people understand how important is to, to, to avoid uh, transmission? And, and I saw a, a little meme on the internet that there is a bunch of matches that are leading up on fire and then somebody pulls one of them and suddenly the fire stops and you know, the other matches are safe. So I think that's a, simple, a very simple example of what people should be doing, correct?
2: Yes, and that, that meme really touched me because we, each of us should focus to be that one matchstick that stopped the transmission. And I think that's where the personal responsibility, we need to teach our children that, you know, we are creating generations of indifference here. It's showing me that it's all about me and this is not good for the world. And this virus may be a way of waking us up as society. I mean, I know I'm sounding philosophical, but if you think back, people need to stick together right now. You know, reach out to your neighbors, ask them, listen, I have a ship delivery coming or I have, a delivery coming from Whole Foods, do you need something so I can avoid your trip to the store? Do you have a grandma or a grandpa that need to be, you know, little things like that. So uh, toilet paper, I really am trying to wrap my head around that. I, yeah, yeah. And I have tried to understand why, but I'm not able to, but it again, points towards all about me. And uh, I think that one matchstick example is more important now because the numbers you said about the exponential growth, to be honest, we are not testing enough. So I think we were already there. We are just not testing enough. So we don't even know what the real numbers are. And that's why it's very important for asymptomatic people to understand that just because we don't know you have it doesn't mean you don't have it. I may not be testing you because I don't have the resources to test you. So stop the transmission. Limit
1: since you mentioned the, the lethality rate, uh, I have read literature somewhere in between 2.5 and 3.5% of lethality of this vi- mortality related to the infectious infection to, uh, after being infected from the virus. Uh, I know that the reason why we think it is so lethal is because I don't think we have a huge denominator of people that have been tested to be able to decrease that percentage. How do you feel epidemiologically? The lack of testing has impacted or not the way we are fearing the
2: illness. So I think uh, there are two ways to look at it. The number of people tested in other countries is not less, you know, but the mortality rate is still correlating with the number of testing. For instance, in Italy, you know, look at the mortality rate is pretty significant compared to the flu. They're testing, but they again like us, were behind, but they caught up. We still haven't, but I really think once we test more, we will have what's called attributable mortality, which will go up. So right now we are thinking, because we haven't tested enough and there's only 100 deaths, maybe if we test and there's 500, uh, if there's like 100,000 people positive, but there's only 100 deaths, the the percentage goes down. No, but the number of deaths that are attributable will also go up exponentially at that time. So I really think the mortality is definitely higher compared to other strains right now. So we need to take that seriously. But why testing is also important is the asymptomatic carriage. Like look at South Korea. They tested, they isolated. Everybody got tested and they isolated them. Social responsibility was at its height. People were going and voluntarily testing and isolating themselves that is what we need uh, i had a physician friend who just came back from europe he said when he left the us and entered the european nation two or three weeks ago he was screened he was questioned you know they they took his temperature at the airport they wrote his name down the same thing in india when you're trying to enter apparently they're doing all this and they're following up the physician came back to tampa airport four days ago from a european country in the middle of an outbreak he walked through the airport without a problem, and he came to work. That's,
1: that's, what, that's what happened to my nephews and nieces and my parents, that they had to leave Colombia as soon as of yesterday, otherwise as of today noon, there are no incoming flights into the United States. And they went through immigration with no questions or any sort of uh, infectious screening uh, testing. That was remarkable. Do you think we're failing the American people from the border type of system? What do you think should have been done differently to avoid this?
2: I think what we are doing as a whole, even when you look at our own medical professionals, and I think there is a fear of testing right now. We are trying to think that if we keep our heads buried under the sand and we don't test and we don't know how big the problem is, it's going to go away. That seems to be the thinking of a lot of people I've come across Uh, the same thing is at the airports. They probably just think if I let them go, I don't have to, I don't know what it is, but it's, is it a fear that is driving the denial or is it a denial because they don't believe it's hard for me to understand, but I'm seeing it on a large scale. Uh, For instance, even uh, like the guidelines we're getting down, you know, from the health department and the screening criteria as a physician, who's trained on infectious disease, and I know epidemiology, I'm looking at the criteria. Even two weeks ago when I was told the patient doesn't meet criteria, I'm like, your criteria belong to a month ago. The problem is already here. So don't use these criteria. Just test if you clinically suspect. But then the problem is we don't have enough testing uh,
1: kids. Can you you tell us, uh, uh, I have seen that obviously we're taking the epidemic one day at a time and I can tell that my, my current practice has changed from what it was two weeks ago to what it was a week ago to what it's today. Uh, as of Monday we got some information from the Florida Department of Health uh, with broadened screening criteria. Do you, are, are, do you think are we late on the screening process or how do you think we should have uh, behave and, and, and tell us just for education of the public, what are the, mo- uh, the current screening criteria for those that are concerned about being ill or infected?
2: So the current screening criteria should have been there from the beginning is what some of us are saying and if you listen to dr Foshi, he's been sounding the alarm from the beginning and he said we are not doing enough you know it's already here and i think we should have let him take the lead and i was listening to him talk two days ago and he said as physicians we need to take the lead we need to go and make policies versus the other way around, where policies are being driven towards us. Uh, Using my education, I should be the one dictating and telling others how to test. You know, I look at patients, I look at where they came from, their risk factors. That's what I do on a daily basis in infectious disease, even without a pandemic, right? Ask for travel history, ask for exposures, and you come up with a risk and a pretest probability. So our knowledge should have been used from the beginning to create the guidelines. Uh, Unfortunately, we are way behind. We are not testing enough. And for the lay public, there's quite a few people that want to get tested and they're calling, but they have no symptoms. Right now, they're not getting tested. But if you feel like you have been exposed at this point, I would please, I would encourage you to just quarantine yourself, self-quarantine, watch for symptoms, because even now it's on the horizon. We have tests coming out. We do know that soon we'll have it, but system is overwhelmed. We can't, we testing everybody and, you know, we're going to isolate them anyway. So right now I'm just telling them, isolate yourself. You know, please don't spread it. Don't be a part of the problem. The people that are being screened now uh, are, you know, either with a travel history or close contact with somebody who came back. And now the, the criteria also includes high-risk people with symptoms without any travel history or, or exposure, which is what we should have done before. The outbreak in Seattle in the nursing home, those old people didn't travel. There's an outbreak in Willowbrook, Illinois right now. 22 people in a, in a facility, seniors. I mean, they didn't travel. So we are learning from that, but we, we could have been proactive. But right now, it's okay. You know, at least we are picking up st- speed now. And I believe, I'm hoping that by the number of testing and amounts of kids available to us and screening being more relaxed, we will be get, uh, able to get ahead of this. You know, at the end of the day, that's what it is.
1: Well, I know that these isolated cases have been potentially theorized that there is a fecal oral route, and there has been some documented isolated cases in which they think that the virus has been found in contaminated water or, or food that, is, uh, that got in contact with COVID-19. Uh, do, do you think this is actually a, a feasible way to acquire the illness?
2: So, you know, just like the Zika virus, the, there are other modes of transmission too. You know, like Zika, towards the end, we didn't, we didn't even know there's sexually transmitted Zika virus. But, but if you look at it from an epidemiological perspective, you always have to, when you're looking at an outbreak, you don't have to look at each and every route of transmission because those might be 0.01% of one case. Are we going to learn anything or do anything by focusing our resources on each way of transmission versus the most common route, you know, which is droplet, which is contact, which is sneezing on someone or coming into contact with droplets, which is the most common route right now. So I know by the end of this pandemic, or in a few weeks, we will know more about what else is the way of transmission, we can always look back and theorize, or come up with answers. But right now, I think we need to focus our resources on the most common way, because we need to get ahead of the curve. We need to stop this first, the bigger picture, and then look at the smaller ways of transmission. Because those might happen, they're okay.
1: One, one thing that I've been remarkably impressed is by the fact that uh, people are walking into the emergency department. And obviously, before the state of emergency came along and EMTALA has been... Uh, on full blast that everybody had to be seen. I guess at this point in time, hospitals are going to implement some sort of triaging process in which if you don't have really symptoms, you should not be coming to the emergency department. Uh, I understand every American is on the right uh, and has the freedom to demand or request based on their uh, civil rights uh, access to healthcare. But I I have seen that um, the, the people are just coming to the emergency room and overcrowding the waiting room. I have seen days of 60, 70, 80 people in the waiting room, some of them healthy, just wanting screening and testing or going for their chronic medical complaints and having people next door that are coughing and hacking on top of each other. We don't know if it's the flu. If it's uh, another uh, coronavirus, because we know that there is several kinds of coronavirus, we don't know if it's metanemovirus, it's extremely hard to really predict. So what do you think should be the education for the p- people out there on when to seek for he- uh, medical help?
2: The only thing I would say, and this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment I made to a friend of mine, well, if you think you have it and you don't have symptoms and you go to a ER, you definitely got it from there when you Correct. come you know,
1: could have been more simple than that. Yeah.
2: So stay home, you know, and please, I know freedom, freedom is a privilege. I know it's a right, but it's also a privilege. We cannot abuse our freedom and use it to just destroy everything we have. It's precious. We cannot use our freedom to affect other people in a bad way. You know, I know you have the freedom to go to the ER to get tested. Okay. But you also exposed yourself to C. diff and MRSA, and which is also still there. The pandemic will end. But those problems are real. Plus you overbound the system, the ER doctors and nurses, and you know, you went home with the coronavirus now, or even a different kind of virus, and now you have symptoms and you're gonna take it home to your family. So I would say stay home. Uh, if just stay home and wait. Educate yourself, listen, and do things the right way. Just do the right thing.
1: Let me ask you a personal question, and this is regarding my personal exposure. I read an article yesterday that said that based on the of what we know about China, 41% of the cases in the hospital, uh, sorry, that percentage of nosocomial rate of infection from coronavirus is as high as 41%. And... Uh, is getting passed around healthcare providers like nothing. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's happening? Why did it happen and how we can avoid it? Uh, uh, should I be worried?
2: Um, what, I, I missed the first part of your question.
1: So we have seen, uh, let, me, let, me, let me quote it exactly. What I read yesterday is that 29% of the severe cases with uh, coronavirus-infected pneumonia were healthcare professionals, and 12.3% were hospitalized patients, suggesting an alarming 41% rate of nosocomial spread.
2: So, I think... Uh, we'll know exactly why this is, but as a physician, I can tell you the inoculum size, right? We're exposed to higher amount of the virus. That's number one. Droplets, the patient's coughing in our face. We're not wearing protective equipment the whole time. You know, uh, in fact, I've heard some uh, doctors tell me that they were told by some of the others in the in the hospitals not to wear masks because it's alarming the patients. Well, what about us? You know, um, but so we are getting exposed at a higher rate. The inoculum size is definitely higher. We are not able to go and get rid of the secretions right away because it gets to stay in our nasopharynx. Is what I'm theorizing. Again, we don't know for sure. But also, look at our regular healthcare workers, especially in America. Look at you and me and we're parents, and we're working full-time. We are sleep-deprived. We don't get time to relax mentally right now because this is taking a toll on us, whether we are ready to accept it or not. It is mentally exhausting. We are under stress, so our stress hormones are high. We are walking and working more hours because we feel like, you know, we have to be there. That's us. We are physicians and nurses and all other healthcare providers, and it takes a toll on us. We are not known to take good care of ourselves from the beginning, from the get go anyway. And now we are in the middle of a situation where they are coming at us and we are not being protected. We don't know who we are exposed to and we keep working despite those attacks. I'm not surprised that we're not doing well. I'm not surprised that the outcomes are worse. Uh, In fact, uh, I feel like we are very vulnerable and we don't get the support we need and we don't take care of each other and ourselves.
1: Dr. Anyha, uh, just to educate the people, what are the most common symptoms that are are shown by uh, when you contract yourself with the virus And, and is this different than any other cold?
2: So some of the reports initially said it's different, you don't get upper respiratory symptoms, you get more of a cough, a sore throat and a fever, but then there are some reports where the patients only had GI symptoms in the beginning, uh, I think the most common symptoms are still the cough, the the body aches is what I'm hearing from a lot of uh, physicians. In fact, on one of my messages from a physician who is now positive in, in, a, in a northern state, she said that she started feeling like she couldn't get up, like she was hit by a train. And then her muscles started to hurt, and she thought, oh, my God, do I have the coronavirus? But she didn't have any other symptoms for the first couple of days. Her throat was fine. You know, she didn't have anything else. Uh, But then slowly she started getting this really bad hacking cough and her chest started to hurt when she took a deep breath. That's when she went to get tested. So symptoms are mostly those. If But then the thing is, we're in the middle of a flu season too. We are in the middle of a flu season right now. Flu hasn't taken a backseat right now. So some of these symptoms can be similar. Um, And the other thing is the co-infection. People were saying, if you have one virus, you don't get the other. I wish that were true. I wish if you got a flu shot and you got the flu, you won't get the coronavirus or RSV or any of those. But it's not true. We are seeing some co-infections, some reports. In fact, there have been a few out of the US right now that had both. So I think you could have mild symptoms if you're otherwise healthy and you have a runny nose or sore throat. But if you consider yourself a high-risk person and you think you've been exposed, I think it's time to get tested when you have those symptoms, you know, because you don't want to go and give it to other people.
1: To our listeners, uh, what are we considering in healthcare uh, high risk people or comorbidities that we we call it? What what are those? Uh,
2: Well, the right in the beginning, they said it was the older population with diabetes and heart disease and other comorbidities, but we are hearing more and more about healthy people being vulnerable to this too. Uh, I consider healthcare workers high risk for transmission. So if you get symptoms, You need to get tested and get out of the workforce for now so you stop the spread. Uh, That's what I meant by high risk right now. But personal high risks are health issues. Like if if you have underlying health issues and you're immunocompromised, you're on chronic medications that suppress your immunity, please take care of yourself.
1: Awesome, I have a few questions that actually I collected here through the neighborhood, and they have been some of them funneled through my wife. They have okay. more access to my wife that they had to me, and 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 I'm gonna just try to lay out some of the common situations that we're dealing with that we're fearful about. So, my wife is concerned about social distancing, and she has been especially contacted by the neighbors, and we have like eight to ten small little kids right here in this cul de sac. They're they're asking, uh, should be Shall we be playing with other kids? Shall we be having playdates? And if we're having playdates, will it help to keep the children away from each other or playing outside? Do you think the heat will be killing the virus? What else, how are we supposed to approach this?
2: My answer to this is cancel everything. flatten the curve. No playdates. This is not a snow day or a hurricane day. It is what it is. No playdates, no hanging out. The kids from each individual household can play in their own backyard. They can take walks. You know, we've been walking our dogs more than ever. My dogs must be thinking, oh, my God, something happened in this house. We've been taking three or four walks a day with the dogs. My kids have. Uh, But they're not playing with other kids in the neighborhood because each kid then goes back and they have exposures. And then, you know, it's, it's just a nightmare. That's what we're talking about. Limit contact. How easy is it in a practical setting to tell young kids to stay six feet from each other? Come on. You know, we're not going to do that. There's droplets. They're not very good hand washers. Kids don't have good hand hygiene. They're always germ carriers. We all know that. This is a situation where this is bound to, you know, exponentially worsen it. So no play dates.
1: Um, I know that my kids attend your kids' school and. Last week, I had a personal situation that was remarkably upsetting. I uh, We got a phone call on a Wednesday that uh, my son was uh, in the nurse nurse's office because he had walked into the office from recess requesting his albuterol medication. He's going through a little bit of an asthma crisis that is exacerbated by the allergies. And the nurse... Uh, wouldn't supply him with the albuterol because we didn't have an asthma action plan. And he wanted just to use it because he had it with himself, but he needed to get access to it in, in the mm-hmm. classrooms. They did, didn't let him use it. And obviously she checked his temperature after having come from running outside and his temperature was 99.9. So they called us immediately that we needed to come and pick him up because he screamed positive for COVID-19. And like, when I confronted her and I was so upset, I said, What makes you think that my son has COVID-19? Oh, because he has a fever of 99.9. I said, by definition, fever is 100.4. So I think more than my son having a fever or having an asthma attack, whatever it was, is the social fear that we have of anyone coughing or sneezing around us. That's just crazy.
2: And again, this is, again, misplaced fear. Like I said, instead of educating ourselves and doing the right thing, we are panicking. And panic is what will... So we have a pandemic and now we have panic and we are making it succeed. You know, we are making the virus do what it intended to do plus worse. Uh, I mean, there's a meme on Facebook where the woman sneezes and four people like pepper spray her and one shoots her, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: For real right now, I'm scared to cough in public right now, you know. But uh, I think uh, that was early on when school was starting to come up with plans for covid And everybody was trying to worry about it. In fact, I volunteered to do junior achievement that week in the school. And uh, the kids were all full of questions, the second graders. And I taught them. And the teacher was very well informed. She was actually talking to them about cruise travel, about flying. It was the week before spring break. So I think educating uh, and talking to the school nurse and trying to calm the fears uh, will help. Uh, And right now, we don't have to worry about it because they're not going back to school anyway. So no more calls for some time. Okay, But it's a panic. I agree with you. So Mm
1: -hmm. obviously we have to avoid places like restaurants and grocery shopping, not going to like Walmart or anywhere else. And, uh, you know, avoiding those big, uh, big places is obviously a big no, no. Correct? Yes. Uh, The other thing that people are asking her is, uh, should they be travel? And if they travel, do you think we should be traveling by ground instead of uh, a plane?
2: Well, I... Or
1: not travel at all?
2: So I did have this conversation with somebody yesterday. And if they're traveling by road, right, uh, are they still going to follow all the precautions that they follow normally? Are they going to limit exposure when they're traveling? Where are they going? Are they safe when they get there? Are they going to stay at home when they go to another place? Uh, So all those factors have to be, uh, you know, and then are you – so each of us have to wonder, have, have we been exposed and are we taking this to the people that we are visiting? Yep. I understand that these are sacrifices. It seems extreme when we talk about it, but this is the time for extreme measures because uh, we just have to do more. We, when I say cancel everything, I mean it. And I'm personally doing it. I'm not saying things that I haven't done. We have been using Uber Eats. The guy comes and drops it at the front door. Um I pick it up and I throw the cover, bleach the box, and then give it to my kids, and it seems crazy, but you know and the, and the, and the Uber Eats driver is okay with that because they don't want to get exposed. We haven't gone to any grocery store. I mean we don 't even as a two physician household it's been difficult to go anyway in the beginning, so we 're kind of used to getting groceries delivered, but we go to work, we go back home. No activities, and when I'm saying that, I mean it, and we have other friends who are mirroring what we do. so yes, it's extreme. Yes, it's a sacrifice, but let's just not do anything for right now and, uh, you know, just hunker it out for now.
1: How much longer do you think we have left of this uh, pandemic? Uh, I don't think it's, we're nearly close from the end. I think this is just the beginning.
2: We haven't even hit the core peak yet in the U.S., uh, and we are not. We have just started limiting things now, even not, not on a global level. I mean, there are some states that are closing things. Tampa is closing things now. So I believe it'll be a good, I don't want to be coded, but, you know, I'm looking at at least a month and a half to two before we even get a hold of this. I mean, it's not leaving yet, but there's hope. If people, even now we start doing what we're supposed to do, there is light at the end of the tunnel.
1: So... Do you think a vaccine will be coming anytime soon? Based on uh, my research, it, it seems that it's going to take at least six months to a year.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's, there's nothing. I'm not uh, predicting a vaccine anytime soon. Uh, and hopefully by then we'll have enough herd immunity for this to become just a regular old strain.
1: Incredible. And do you think the heat, being outside in the heat, like people are thinking that's going to kill the virus, do you think it really makes a difference in avoiding transmission?
2: Uh, As in like, (laughs) I mean, if it's on a surface and there's sun, and I I mean, theoretically, it does work, but uh, how long ago did the droplet fall? Again, these are all hypothetical situations, right? So somebody sneezes and you're like, oh, the sun is out. I'll be okay. Nah, that doesn't work like that. It has to be focused heat. So instead of looking at ways of how the sun could be killing the virus, we should just stay out. I mean, stay indoors or stay away from people.
1: And, and one thing that yesterday in the late news was remarkably concerning is the fact that there were two doctors household like yours. And one of them was in an infectious disease specialist. And her husband was uh, uh, an emergency physician. And she's in maternity leave. She had a three-week-old baby on her arms, and the decision that was made within the household was to make her husband sleep in, uh, in the basement on different quarters, and he has to be entering and leaving the house through that same uh, basement door without getting access to the common place of the house and he has to be taking a shower cleaning his hands and taking a bath using this uh, daily clothes washing because he's in the basement close to the washing and drying machine so he's doing all this kind of things. so my wife told me when you come back to work on Sunday that's what you're going to do and um, I'm going to tell you the truth uh, I think that's going to minimize it do you think it'll make a difference if I'm a strict and anal about this kind of behavior?
2: Uh, I can tell you that We, uh, when we go into our house, we go, we take our shoes out in the garage as a general habit, even from the the before. And our laundry room is right next to the mudroom. So I'm actually used to doing this even before. So what I've changed in my daily routine is I've started wearing scrubs because, you know, you're supposed to use hottest water setting and I'm definitely not going to wear my nice clothes and I'm wearing my old sneakers. So if I have to throw them away, I won't cry so much. Practical things. Uh, Same thing with my husband. We are both wearing our clothes that as soon as we come home, we throw them in the laundry, we wash them at the highest water setting, shower, and then meet the kids. And the kids are now used to that social distancing from us. As soon as we go home, it used to be cuddles and hugs. It hasn't been happening that way. We wait, Uh, go up, take a shower. I know it's a little extreme sounding, but You know, we carry, our fomites, we carry the infection on us. And uh, if he, that's, I think what they're doing as a couple, especially with the baby and the immunocompromised wife, because she's just delivered a baby, um, I think it's the right thing. That's, uh, it's unique because we are physicians and we have to follow these very carefully.
1: One question, just to kind of link this a little bit on the usual topic of our podcast. Um, Obviously, you have a passion for what you do. What, What led you to choose infectious diseases, in your when you wanted to accomplish further training in your specialty
2: so uh i was actually not in this uh mindset when i first came to the u.s i always wanted to be a cardiologist and then i always wanted to be a heme oncologist in my second year as a as a resident resident when we were applying for fellowships and my heme oncology uh, hematology oncology attending actually gave me very good recommendation letter was you know, recommending me to the local program and it was really going well. Uh, But I felt that my husband does infectious disease and he was an attending already and he would come home and tell me all these things about what he did. And I came from India where we did see a lot of infections. The only difference was in India, they were common. Here, they were exotic illnesses, right? Malaria and all those. And HIV was another one. I got exposed to HIV clinic and the patients with my infectious disease attending as a second year resident. He was also the chairman of our uh, internal medicine uh, department. Very passionate about what he did, Dr. Fury. And uh, the way those patients were sick and then he got them better with the medicines. And you know they came back and they were doing well was so rewarding and we were helping the people that needed us the most. It's not a very glamorous specialty. You know, people look at us and there's so many misconceptions of who I am, what I do. Uh, But at that point, I just decided, you know, I'm not looking at this for money, but the reward at the end of the day was, you know, my patients actually walk out of the hospital and when they come to my office, I'm able to fix most of the problem, you know, either whether it's sepsis or even HIV or any of those infections, the outcomes are pretty good and they're not bleak and I get to hug them. I get to know them. So the reward for me was you, getting, you,
1: you hug them when you can hug them, huh?
2: Of course. Now I <laughs> <have to> practice, <laughs> but, you know, uh, so that's what changed my um, approach and I applied for infectious disease and I got in and I think, I mean, I've made the best decision ever. I love this. I love what I do. I love the, you know, the spy work. You have to go in and look at all the possibilities uh, you have to know what bugs and know your drugs. That's what I tell my patients uh, before the cultures come out. Yeah.
1: So I'm a lay person, pretend that I am, and you said that people don't know what you do for a living. How do you explain it to them in a simple way so everybody understands what you do?
2: So even, even when you apply for jobs or, you know, the uh, administrative level, uh, the initi- I, because I worked for two corporations before I joined my or started my own practice. I quit my job two and a half years ago. But before that, I used to work for them. There was always this, they felt like uh, infectious disease would scare people. It was a specialty that made people think all the sick people go there and that I'm somehow exposed to all these infections. And The truth is, I am not exposed to many infections because the primary care physicians, ER doctors like you, you are the front line. You call me only when you suspect something, right? So you've already made the decision, okay, I need to isolate this person and let me call Dr. Neja. So when I come in, I'm already prepared, except maybe a couple of cases where, you know, people miss the first few signs and then all of us are exposed. So my level of exposure, my level of risk is actually, if not equal, it's lesser than everybody else in the front line. You especially, you know? So people used to misunderstand what we do. They thought we were always taking care of these wounds and, you know, we were into these things that nobody else wants to touch and contagious, you know, things like that. That's not true. I see the same patients everybody else does they have diabetes, they see the endocrinologist, they see me for a foot infection. So uh, things are changing. I think this virus has put infectious disease (laughs) up in the front. So a lot of people understand what we do. Uh, My passion is actually, you know, inpatient medicine. So I see a lot of patients with sepsis and, you know, they're intubated, their families are worried. But I always tell them if they came in and they were healthy before this happened, they will come out of this. And that's what usually happens. So, uh, it's just a matter of educating people. Uh, I do not treat, uh, parasites, which people think they have. I do not treat, uh, black mold, <laughs> which a lot of people think I do. So some of those are misconceptions, but other than that, I think, you know, I'm pretty good at explaining what I do to people.
1: How do you think, uh, Our community, and I think we benefit a lot from having foreign medical graduates in the system. One of every fourth physician in the U.S. is a foreign medical graduate like you and me. You're from India. I'm from Colombia. I I think you bring a fantastic perspective into the system because uh, we're growing in in countries that sometimes don't have the best uh, public health care setup. And if they do, sometimes our countries and cities are extremely clouded. And the other factor is that you have seen illnesses that no one else has seen in the United States ever because of the level of technological and public health care advancements. Uh, I, I do feel that we bring something new to the system. How do you feel about that? Being a proud foreign medical graduate, bringing some sort of outer perspective as a foreigner into the system and how to make it better.
2: So I think even if you go back, Uh, When you come in as a foreign medical graduate, that itself is a label that stays with you. The FMG, you know, when you apply for residencies and I'm talking about uh, about 15 years ago, 16. I applied 16, 17 years ago was when I was taking my USMLE. Uh, And I was limited to Chicago because my husband had his practice and I didn't want to move away from him. So because it's a saturated city, you were already kind of told that the programs that will interview you are going to be the ones that the American graduates don't want to go to. And it was an eye-opener. I was not aware of that because I have been a top scorer throughout my life. I mean, I've been, uh, I even, uh, I mean, my USMLE, I aced it. I aced my ABI and boards. Uh, my knowledge bank was high. I was a very hardworking physician. So all those things are in your face when you're like, these things don't matter. It's not, it doesn't matter who you are. It's a big eye-opener but I think it adds to your resilience. So you pick the program that sort of wants you instead of the other way around, uh, and you just take it, right? But then you make the most of it, and then you meet other FMGs in your program, and you see how the medical students who rotate with you are treated differently from you. You know, they are treated like, oh yeah, they're from here, and your accent, and everything is looked at differently. It's almost as if every day you have to prove yourself. And as a woman, especially more than a man, plus if you're from a foreign country, plus if you, you know look different. Uh, things have changed though, over the last few decades. I mean, I think, I honestly feel, even though it's harder for foreign graduates to match now, it's harder for even American graduates to match because slots are low. But I think uh, as more and more of us are becoming more prominent in society, we are, I'm an entrepreneur, you are, look at you, I mean, we've all uh, created our own paths in our own way, and I have learned to take it in my stride, and I ignore the subtle hints about "Oh, you're not from here." And slowly, those things go in the background; they just disappear because now you've established yourself. People don't question your knowledge, and I am actually told by many of my patients that I bring a different perspective because of my different training. We read from textbooks, we didn't prepare for questions; we prepared with Hallis, for life. Yeah, you no, know, exactly, and I did. Uh, as a house officer in Delhi in a tertiary care center, before I came to the US, I worked as an intern for a year. I must have sutured miles and miles and miles of skin, you know, C-sections to appendectomies to delivering babies in the ER uh, without, pers- I mean, how many times have I been exposed to infection without even realizing it because I didn't have time to put on my protective equipment, things like that. Looking at people, um, resource limited settings, and then learning in the trenches really prepared me to be a good physician. Uh, so when I came here and then I had to go through all this and I, in my specialty too, you know, infectious disease was considered to be something that not many people went into. Uh, it's, it's changing now. People are learning that, you know, each specialty is different. So I think as a foreign medical graduate, we are a totally, we bring a very different perspective to the workforce we bring a perspective that is very different to even healthcare in general. You know, we are, we are very responsible with our resources. We connect with uh, the system differently. Uh, and I think we are undervalued, but it's okay. You know, we just have to do our thing and uh, we are here for a reason.
1: Thank you for what you do. Well, I have not only said it, I, uh, on my last podcast, I said, guys, stay home wash your hands. But now I brought an infectious disease specialist that sees this on daily basis and right now is remarkably overwhelmed. So stay home, wash your hands, cover your cough, limit social exposure. And the most important lesson that I think she said at the very beginning is be socially conscious. Stop being selfish. This is not about you as a person. It's not about you b- being called Mary or Peter or Juan. It's about us. This is the moment in which the community and the country has to prove to everybody across the world that we are not selfish individuals and that we care about the commonwealth. So that's the message I'm going to leave you with. Anything else, Dr. Aniha, that you want to say to our public and our listeners and the ones that are in non healthcare
2: Um, I think stay safe, stay healthy and hopefully once we get out of all this we'll have lots of post-COVID parties. And then we'll be preparing for hurricane season in Florida. So if you've bought all the toilet paper in the world, hold on to it because you will need it.
1: (laughs) This is amazing. It's been an hour and a little longer, and you have given us so many tips of advice. Due to the the crisis and the pandemic, I'm hoping to have this available by tomorrow. And I bet that you're going to be listened very much so, and I'm going to keep you updated. So guys, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. In that way, you can get in the as automatic downloads and visit my website and now visit me to kind of listen about my youtube channel and we're gonna probably hope to see dr nieha for an update a few weeks from now hopefully if she has some time because she's just getting busier and busier and busier
2: thank you have a good day
1: you, too. you. thank you for your time doctor
2: thank you